Well, thank you, Ben Kai, and good morning, everyone. And before we, and good morning, Daniel in, in Oregon. He's, I think, watching us right now. But before we start, let me just share something to follow up on praying for Tom. We are a church that believes in praying for those who are sick. And James 5.13 says, if you are sick, to call for the elders and let them anoint you with oil uh, and pray over you. So we do that in obedience for anybody that wants prayer when they're sick. So you let us know. We've had some people come up uh, after service before and request that, but it's, it's a, just a beautiful way for the body to minister to each other. So we're, we're here. We're available for that. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Truth About False Teachers. I couldn't come up with a, a better way to... <laughs> Uh, to summarize what we're going to look at, and it's out of 2 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter. We're going to look back into chapter 1 at a few things first, and then spring forward into chapter 2 and bounce around to a few other parts of Scripture to explain it, and we'll have most of the key verses up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. But a thought to start this whole um, time together with on this topic is Uh, a truism that's about as reliable as the law of gravity, and it is this, that in our fallen world, wherever truth exists, counterfeits to that truth will always arise. It's been that way since the fall of mankind, when God said and spoke truth into existence, uh, including the truth that sin leads to death, and yet what happened? Satan was there to counter it with those infamous words we find in Genesis 3, 1 through 4 of, did God really say, and then you will not surely die. And since the new heavens and the new earth uh, have not yet come, we who have been redeemed by the truth of the gospel still live in that kind of fallen world today, as did our fellow believers in the first century church. And that is what Peter, under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, you learned in the Holy Spirit series is the spirit of truth, is going to address in chapter 2 of Peter, which is what we're going to cover this morning. Now, the principle that wherever that which is real and true exists, counterfeits will arise, can be very easily seen in all kinds of areas outside of the church, if you think about it, Um, such as in all the counterfeit goods that are out there, right? Uh, I remember a few years ago, <clears throat> we were trying to buy a, a pair of designer boots for one of our daughters, and it was one of those things where it was kind of late towards Christmas, and everywhere we looked was sold out. We happened to find a pair online from some third world country, and the price looked really good, and so <laughs> we ordered it, um, but when uh, it got there and she opened it Christmas morning, you know, the box, the, the logos on the box didn't quite look like the logos on the real thing. And <clears throat> she opened it up and pulled out the boots, and the designer logo was about a quarter of the size it was supposed to be on the real thing. And then she started wearing it, and a couple days later, one of the heels fell off. And so, you know, we got taken by a counterfeit good of the real thing. I have a, a friend of mine who's a, a very intelligent lawyer, generally pretty humble and frugal, but he went off to New York for a for a case, and he came back, and I, I noticed his watch looked different. And it looked really nice, and I'm looking at that, and I go, you know, Larry, what, what did you get there? And he goes, I, I bought a Rolex. And I said, really? You bought a Rolex? And he said, yeah, there was a guy in the street who was selling them for 50 bucks. <laughs> so I bought one, and catch this, he said, he also offered me a certificate of authenticity for another 20 bucks. He said, but I didn't go for that. So, you know, see, we, we deal with this in our world all the time. And of course, there's a problem with counterfeiting Uh, with respect to our money. Uh, Has this ever happened to you? You go to pay for something larger than a $20 bill, like a 50 or a 100, um, and it's like they don't want your money, right? They gotta run it under a blue light, draw a line across it with some special pencil or pen to see if it's real, because we wrestle with counterfeit uh, things in this world. Well, this morning, God's Word is going to show us how to do the same thing, how to put it under the blue light, run that magic pen across it, with respect to false teachers and false teaching in the church. And so to set the context for what we're going to see in chapter 2, it really helps to take a step back and look at the big picture of what we've just learned in chapter 1. Because, you know, while it's often profitable for us to drill down into the meaning of a particular verse or a particular word, and Daniel, Benkai, and myself all love to do that, it's also profitable to look at the big picture 
of a section of scripture so that we don't miss the forest as we are focusing on the trees. And when we do that here, we will see that the book of 2 Peter is an unbelievably well-organized book, which given that Peter had previously been an uneducated fisherman, is itself a testimony to the transformative power of God's word in his life and of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in what he wrote. And the importance of what Peter wrote here is also highlighted by the fact that, as Daniel told us when we started this book, he wrote this book at the very end of his life, very shortly before his death. So like many of us would probably want to do before we died, if we knew that time was soon, he is pouring out here to his loved ones, to the body of Christ, some of the things that are most important to him, the things that he wants to be his legacy and that he wants those who come after him in the faith to be sure to know. So therefore, in chapter 1, he talked about things like this, the truth and the power of the gospel. That's what the first week's message is all about. And then last week, he talked about the Word of God and the fact that all through that, the knowledge that in the knowledge of Jesus, through the knowledge of Jesus, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. In fact, having the knowledge of Christ is really the key phrase in all of chapter 1. Let me show you where we see this. In chapter, chapter 1, verse 3, 2 Peter 1, 3, it says this, His divine power has granted to us all things. Now, that's a really easy word. It just means all, okay? There's no exceptions. All things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Look at the next part. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And he mentioned the importance of the knowledge of Christ again down in verse 8 after he talked about those things we, we add to that in order to, to supplement our faith as Daniel talked. In verse 8 he says, For if these qualities, those, those lists that Daniel gave us, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Peter wants us to notice in this first chapter. So it's clear that he wants us to know in chapter 1, theologically, what is called the sufficiency of Christ. That in Christ, you and I have everything we need to be the person of God that he has called us to be. And that he gives us both the resources in who he is and in what he taught, as well as the power in the indwelling of his Holy Spirit to live as he wants us to live in this fallen world. Now, the other major point in chapter 1 <clears throat> has to do with what theologically is called a related topic, the sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency of Christ, sufficiency of Scripture. And we see this in verse 16 to the end of the chapter that Daniel covered last time. For he tells us in verse 16, remember that God's Word is not a cleverly devised myth and then down in verse 19, he tells us that we should pay attention to it. And then in verse 21, that it reveals the will of God to us and that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when we think of chapter 1, the big picture, the forest should show us the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture. So there's the truth that Peter wants us to know. Now, what Peter's going to show us next in chapter 2 is that in contrast to, in opposition to those truths, false teachers are going to tell us that we don't have all that we need in Jesus and that we don't have all that we need in the Word of God and that in addition to those truths, we need to listen to their so-called truth. So false teachers are going to attack or seek to undermine the sufficiency of Christ and or the sufficiency of Scripture. So with that in mind, let's pray and then let's begin to study chapter 2 together. Father God, we thank you so much that you have indeed given us all things pertaining to life and godliness in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your perfect word, Lord, inspired by your Holy Spirit, completely true, completely authoritative. Lord, help us to be people that cling to those truths, Lord, that live by those truths. And Lord, as we move forward now in your word in this next chapter, help us to be able to uh, discern um, the true from the false and help us to, to stay out of the, the various pits of false teaching that 
people will try to drag us into. We want to be a place that stands for you and for your truth. So teach us now, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at chapter 2, the first three verses first. It says, now, in contrast to what we just saw, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So with Peter's mind renewed from his days as a salty fisherman, he gives us here in these first three verses, again, in an incredibly organized fashion, sort of an overview or outline of the topics that he's going to address in the rest of the chapter. And the first thing we see in verse 1 is that he's going to talk about false teachers, including where they will come from, what they will do, and what is going to happen to them. Now, as for where false teachers come from, he warns us there in this verse that they will come from, look at this, from among us, just as he says the false prophets did in a previous era. You know, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's kind of sad that in the modern church and in many Christians, uh, we spend so much time worrying about that which is false outside of the church whether it's in government or schools or the news or in entertainment, yet Peter warns us here to be concerned about that which is false inside of the church and inside of the Christian community. Yes, there is falsehood outside of the church, but that is to be expected because the world does not know God. Uh, the man that discipled me 35 years ago used to say, it's a trite phrase, but it's a good one to remember, unsaved people, Act unsaved because they're unsaved, okay? Should be no surprise to us, okay? <laughs> you don't need to know much more than that. But what we have to watch out for is the falsehood within the church. Uh, Alistair Begg, a great uh, American preacher you can hear on the radio, said this one time. He said he thinks the enemy must just love it when we in the church get so focused on what's going on outside of the church because then we tend to miss what the enemy is doing inside of the church through false teachers and false teaching. You see, lies about God, misstatements of God's truth are from the world and from the enemy, but we should expect them outside of the church. Yet it is when they somehow get inside the church that they really become a problem, and that's what Peter is addressing. Look at how Jude puts this. It's almost like these are almost the, the cliff notes or the spark notes for all of uh, our chapter 2. Look at Jude um, 1 4. There's only one chapter in Jude, so some people say Jude 4, but Jude 1 4, um, near the end of your Bible, it says this For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. Jesus. Let's camp on this for a second because it'll help make Peter's words come alive. Think about Jude's Holy Spirit-inspired words there to describe what happens. Do you see how he says these false teachers got into the church? He says they crept in unnoticed. The fact that they creep in has what kind of connotation? What's that make you think of? It's kind of, kind of reptilian, isn't it? Doesn't it sound kind of like a serpent? Or a lizard. I know when I was a kid, like a lot of boys back then, I had a number of pet snakes. You can't really call them pets because you can't handle them. So they'll bite you. But we kept them in terrariums. And one of them was a gopher snake. If you know anything about gopher snakes, they're kind of like rattlers without a rattle. I mean, they're just not very nice snakes. And I'll never forget, he escaped one time because you leave the tiniest little crack somewhere and they'll get out and escape. And we couldn't find him for about a month. And then my mom happened to be cleaning in my bedroom one day, and I had a guitar. I never learned how to play it, but I had a guitar in the closet. And all of a sudden, she started hearing these sounds like something was making weird music. And she looked, and there was the snake coming out of the hole in the guitar up through the, the guitar strings. You know, he had crept in there unnoticed. Nobody had seen him. 
and he was trying to creep out unnoticed, and we only heard about him because he hit the guitar strings. So that's the connotation here, They're very reptilian. Um, and the fact that they creep in unnoticed tells us that the people in the church have their eye off of the ball and don't notice them coming in. Jude also describes there in a nutshell what these false teachers do in one form or another, and he says that it is that they pervert the grace of God. So keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that theme uh, later on in 2 Peter 2 about how they pervert God's grace. But for now, let's go back to verse 1 of uh, 2 Peter 2. And we see there that Peter describes what these false teachers will do as being to secretly bring in, similar to this creeping in, secretly bring in destructive heresies. So first note that it says there that they do this secretly, which means they are not going to announce their intentions, and it's not going to be obvious. Now, Greg Laurie said one time, look, Satan's not so stupid as to mark this road to hell. No one's going to follow the road. He always says, yeah, this way to heaven. So, so it's done very secretly, but also, um, uh, you see, that which is true is never afraid of being in the light of the day, but that which is false knows that it can be exposed by the light of the day, so it tends to operate in secret and in darkness and not out in the open. Now, next notice what it is that these false teachers bring into the church in verse 1. It says there that they bring in destructive heresies. You see, heresies, which what we might call here false doctrines of the faith, are destructive to the church and they're destructive to the believer. And that is, think about this, because what we believe really matters, and it can have life-changing consequences. We all acknowledge this in the physical, material world. For instance, because I believe, because you believe in the laws of gravity, we don't on purpose jump off of tall buildings, do we? Right? Or because we believe in the laws of physics, even though we don't fully understand them, we don't on purpose drive our car into brick walls. What we believe affects our behavior. And if it's that way in the natural world, it's going to be the same way in the spiritual world. For instance, what we believe about grace, if we really understand what it means that we've received God's grace, which we're going to talk more about, then we're going to be more likely to show it to others. But if we haven't really received it and don't know what we've got, we're going to have a really hard time showing it to others. Same thing with God's forgiveness. You know, there was a graphic example of this in America about 25 years ago. How many of you remember uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? Everybody remember that story? Well, a study was done um, after all that uh, debacle that ended in the giant fire in Waco where they all perished. A study was done as to how did this church, because they started out as a church, end up that way? What happened? And here's what they found. A group of people that called themselves the branch broke out of a uh, somewhat aberrant Seventh-day Adventist church. And the thing they disagreed with was they believed there was a, what we would call a plurality in the Godhead, meaning God is one, but he exists, we believe, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he's revealed it in his word. But the branch group believed that, you know what? There's more than just a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There could be a whole family in the plurality of the, of the Godhead. I mean, come on. There's aunts and uncles and grandparents and brothers and sisters and children. So that's what they believe. Nobody in their main church stood up and challenged him. Fine, that's your belief. You go off and do whatever you want to do. David Koresh was in that group. About five years later, he got the idea, and apparently they all got the idea too, that guess what? He was part of that family. So he was part of the, of the Godhead. And now they would do whatever he told them to do, including die in that fiery inferno that they were all killed in in Waco, Texas. So what we believe really matters. And it can have dire, dire consequences, even spiritually. Now, most of the time, what we see spiritually is not that extreme, but the consequences can still be devastating. There are countless times I know when uh, Brother Benkai and I have been counseling people that are struggling with forgiveness issues with others, and, and we're sharing God's word with them. The, the key verse, Ephesians 4.30, says, we're to forgive others as Christ forgave us. Well, did Jesus make me earn my forgiveness? No. Did Jesus um, make my, condition, my forgiveness conditional? No. Did Jesus give me forgiveness because I deserve it? No. Well, 
We forgive others the same way. They may not deserve it. And we can't get through to people on that. And, well, and we usually find out they're going somewhere else to someone who claims they're Christian, who's counseling them with things like, well, you don't have to forgive until you see them change. Yeah? Where's that in Scripture? Okay, so you see, false teaching, slight little things like that can have dire personal consequences. David Guzik, the pastor from Santa Barbara, who discipled Daniel, says this in his heresy. Just three short little words. I love this. He says, heresies hurt people. Okay? Heresies hurt people. That's why they're so destructive. And he goes on to point out they also disgrace God and his character. So now, Peter's going to give us a couple of categories into which these destructive heresies will fall. And in the middle of 2 Peter 2.1, still in this introduction, he says that they will deny the master, which of course is a reference to Jesus. So in chapter 1, Jesus was exalted, right, as our all-sufficient Savior and Lord, the one in whom we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. But now in chapter 2, Peter is warning us that false teachers will deny him. And the Greek word there used for deny literally meant to, to repudiate. And so the sense here is that false teachers don't just deny the person or work of Christ, but they deny what Jesus taught. Or in other words, they deny the doctrines of Christ, that central one that runs all through Scripture that Daniel closed with last time, of, from Genesis to Revelation, of this redeeming God seeking to, to show grace to his fallen people. They deny those doctrines. They twist them. They pervert them. But before we consider exactly how false teachers repudiate this doctrine, let's first notice a few more things that Peter tells us just in the opening verse. At the end of verse 1, he tells us what is going to happen to these false teachers, for he says there that they will be destroyed. And then we read in verses 4 to 16, uh, or when we read verses 4 to 16, we'll see how he expands on that. Now, I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. In verses 2 and 3, Peter gives us some telltale signs of what these false teachers will look like. And, and I don't mean physically look like or what kind of hairdos they're going to have or anything like that. Um, in verse 2, he tells us that they will be sensual, which in the Greek also meant to engage in lewd behavior. So they will be people who follow and try to get others to follow their sensual, fleshly desires. So in chapter 1, again, think of the contrast. We saw in verses 5 to 7 those things that nurture or supplement our faith. We saw things like uh, virtue, self-control, and godliness. These guys, and they can be gals too, will instead supplement our faith with sensuality and <laughs> following our fleshly desires, and the two don't really mix. Also in verse 2, Peter tells us that these false teachers will be blasphemers of the truth. And to blaspheme basically means to speak against something. Again, it's like repudiation. So they will speak against the truth, which is another way of saying they will speak against God's word. Not obviously, not directly, but usually very subtly. So at the end of chapter 1, we saw last time God's word being exalted and God's word being held out as totally sufficient for us but these false teachers are going to speak against that and tell us that we need more than the word in order to live a godly life. And so they seek to bring the world's truth, the world's wisdom, and the world's ways into the church. And then in verse 3, we see that these false teachers will also be greedy and that in their greed, they will exploit us, the believers. So basically, they will make their ministry about what they can get out of it, whether it's money, position, power, attention, fame, you name it. Now, let's look at verses 4 to 16 with those basic introductory thoughts in mind. It goes on to say, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, 
they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So now, as we go back through these verses, let's see if we can identify some things in there that fit back into these introductory points, these summary points that Peter gave us in verses 1 through 3. And the first one that should jump out us over and over again is the fact that judgment will come upon these false teachers. I mean, God will deal with them. We can count on that. That's part of why we don't need to have fear, as Benkai said. God will destroy them. For we see in verses 4 to 8 that God purified heaven of the sinning angels when a third of them joined Satan in his rebellion, that God judged the world at the time of Noah, and yet he preserved Noah, and that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, yet he rescued Lot. And so in verses 9 and 10, Peter then says, since God did all of that, we can have faith that he will also deal likewise with these false teachers. And not only that, but look at this amazing truth in the first part of verse 9. It says there that God knows how to rescue his people from trials. That's a beautiful truth for us to remember. We want to dig into that a little bit more. The Greek word translated there as trials can also be translated as temptations. So whether it's a trial that's coming upon you not because of your sin or it's a temptation you're going through because you're tempted into sin, it's speaking to us in those situations. And it's the same word that's used over in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So let's take a quick look at that. No temptation, which can also say trial, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, there's a lot in there that we could discuss, but in an effort to limit it to just trying to learn about false teachers... Here's a few things we should notice. Since we know, as Peter has already taught us, these false teachers will both deny the doctrines of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture, as well as the sufficiency of Christ, we have right here in the Word, the first part says that whatever our particular temptations are, guess what? They're common to every other believer. That means we can't claim that they are unique to us, rare to us, or unusual, or use something like that as a reason to say that we can't deal with them or that we need more than Jesus and his word to deal with them. Because the word here says that whatever temptations anyone is struggling with is something all of us have struggled with, which means we all can relate to it. And we don't really need to go somewhere else outside of the church or outside of the word to help us understand them and learn how to deal with them. We can go to each other and we can encourage each other. That's why we have a prayer team up here afterwards. We can encourage people with our own struggle with the same things and with the truth of God's word. Second, the verse tells us that what we have in Jesus is sufficient to get us through the temptation and out of it to freedom on the other side. For it says God will either provide a way of escape or he's going to give you a way to endure under it. I love Greg Laurie's illustration of this. He says when we're going through trials or temptations, it's like God's got one hand on us, the Christian, and his other hand on the thermostat. And he can feel how we're doing and he never lets the thermostat go higher than he knows what we can possibly handle. He's in control in the midst of it. But with respect to that truth, we can count on the fact that false teachers are going to try to convince us that in the body of Christ and in Christ and in his word, we really don't have all that we need to find victory over temptation in our lives. And that instead, we need their teachings, their methods, their programs, and certainly those won't be given to any of us at no charge, like the word is and like grace is, because... They are greedy, and they will seek to exploit us. We'll need to pay them for their extra or unbiblical help and advice. 
So it should be pretty evident so far that one of the ways that God protects us from false teachers, what we've been doing here, what Peter's been doing, is to show us what they look like, show us what they teach, so that we can learn to identify them and stay away from them. So in keeping with that point, let's go back to 2 Peter 2 for a few more identifying characteristics of false teachers. And we're going to zero in on verse 10 because we don't have time to exposit every verse here. In verse 10, we see three more things about them. It says they are lustful, they despise authority, which in context would mean authority over them in the church that they're part of, and that what they do, they do willfully, meaning intentionally, not just by mistake or accident or even out of ignorance. Now, to lust for something means to desire it, not for what you can give it, which is what love does, but rather for what you can get out of it to gratify your own fleshly desires. I mean, look, Jesus gave his life and gave us his blood and gave us his love, not for what he could get out of it, but for what we could receive from it. A false teacher would never do that. He or she wants to own you, control you, take your time, take your money, take your devotion and attention. In short, they are lustful for their own glory, not for the glory of Jesus. Because let's face it, even if what they teach you worked, who gets the glory? They do, not God. And everything is to be about God's glory. So false teachers, secondly, we see, won't submit to the authority in the church, which is the word of God, as taught and administered through the pastors and elders. In fact, um, experience has taught me that when confronted by the elders of the church, you will usually find that false teachers then usually go around bad-mouthing the elders to others, trying to stir up dissension, division, and strife. And if that doesn't work, they will usually just leave rather than submitting to the elders. Now, I know this is a lot of really heavy stuff that we have to look at in this chapter. And it's funny, when Daniel first gave this to me, I was so excited to teach. And then I looked at it and I thought, oh, nice, Daniel. You got to talk about the gospel and all this great stuff. And then you take off and leave me with this. But I'm only kidding, of course, because here's the thing. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all of Scripture is profitable for us. So it is good for us, it is good for us, uh, Christians, to look at these things because they will strengthen us against deception. And now, here is an encouraging thing in verse 10. A real false teacher, it says there, is doing all of this willfully. So we don't want any of what we're teaching on to discourage any of you in your desire to perhaps disciple someone else in the church because God wants you to do, do that, or in your desire to go teach in children's ministry because children are very special to Jesus and he wants you to do that. If you undertake to do one of those things and you make a mistake or you say something wrong out of ignorance, you are not a false teacher. Let me just say this right here and now in the authority of God's word. You are not a false teacher because you didn't do it willfully. Sure, go study the word more, sit under the teaching of others who can teach you, but do not call yourself a false teacher because you did not do it willfully. Now, we don't have time to dig into this part of the chapter, but if we were to sift through uh, verses 11 through 16, you will see also there that false teachers, some more descriptions, they're irrational, meaning what they say really doesn't make that much sense when you think about it. They revel and rejoice in their deceptions. I mean, they like doing this kind of stuff. They're adulterous, and they have an insatiable desire for sin. So let's read the last five verses and then try to unpack those and wrap it up. So that's verses 17 to 22 next. The word says this, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, these verses tell us a few more things about false teachers, 
but in the interest of time, let's just look at two of them. Verse 17, they're described as waterless springs and as mists driven by a storm. You see, in contrast to what we have in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit whom he gives us, who causes rivers of living water to to well up in us and then to flow out of us, false teachers do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have living water, the water of life, and that's not going to be flowing out of them. And nothing you're going to get from a false teacher is ever going to make that happen in you. A waterless spring is an empty well or a bottomless pit, and that is not a very good place to be. So false teachers are not going to help you to be filled with the Spirit. They're not going to help you learn how to rely on the power of the Spirit in your life. Rather, they're going to seek to cultivate in you a reliance on fleshly things, namely a reliance on your own flesh, a reliance on fleshly methods, especially the ones they can get rich off selling to you to try to live the Christian life. In Galatians 3.3, Paul calls this perfecting the flesh, which means that by your flesh, you are trying to improve your flesh. And he calls it in the same verse, foolish. Pretty strong words to use to Christians. Foolish. Because it doesn't work, as he explains in Colossians 2, and it is not pleasing to God. Now, look at what verse 19 says, the second thing that these false teachers do. It says they will promise us freedom, meaning that they will tell us that their teachings, their methods, their programs will set us free from sinful desires. But then it says that they will actually enslave us because there will be no victory from their methods and programs and ways of doing things. Our victory, brothers and sisters, is in Christ. It is in Him that we're more than conquerors, not in the methods of man. And the truth that sets us free is the truth of God's Word not man's truth. And then think of what it means to be just a mist driven by a storm. A mist vanishes. It is here one moment and gone the next. It has no stability or staying power, and there is no substance to it. And that is what false teachers are like. They come and go like the flavor of the month. They come and go tickling the itching ears of Christians in one community to another community. They're not eternal. They're not unchanging like the Holy Spirit is. Now, the final thing to note in this chapter, and this is where we can really begin to learn how to protect ourselves here, is who these false teachers go after. And we see that right in the middle of verse 14, where it says that they entice unsteady souls. So exactly what is that? And how do we make sure that that does not become us? Well, in the Greek, the word unsteady meant to be ungrounded. So false teachers are going to go after ungrounded souls and try to make them fall or slip. And an ungrounded Christian is one who is not learning and growing in God's Word because it's God's Word that will give them the knowledge of Christ that gives them all things pertaining to life and godliness that chapter 1 talked about. And remember, as Daniel closed last time, the Bible is all about Jesus from cover to cover. And so an ungrounded Christian is one who is trying to be all that God has called them to be by the power of their own flesh instead of by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit who indwells them. So get grounded in God's Word because it is truth and it will ground you in the truth. Know the truth and then the false will be very apparent to you. You don't have to study the false in order to be able to detect it. And you'll notice I'm not naming names this morning. And Peter's not naming names and the people in his time. We don't need to do that. You just need to know what the truth is so you can discern the false. And look, realize that God can speak to us in all kinds of ways because he's God. He can speak in any way he wants. He can speak through creation, and he does that. He can speak through prayer, and he does that. He can speak to us through other people, and he does that. He can even speak to us through books we read, movies we watch, songs we listen to or even our circumstances. But when we think we've heard him speak to us in those areas, we need to always be sure to run what we thought God said back through the totally reliable, unchanging, absolutely perfect grid of Scripture 
because it is our only 100% reliable source of God's voice. And if what you think you were hearing from those other sources does not line up with God's word, then guess what? It's not from God, right? This Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He's always going to work in conjunction with the truth, God's word. But there are other spirits out there that don't follow that. You know, um, some of you may have heard this story before. It's not a story, I mean, it's a, a true fact. Um, the Secret Service, by uh, law, is tasked with protecting two things. One is the president, and that's what we always think of, but the other is our currency. And I had the privilege years ago of discipling a, a Secret Service agent that was part of our initial congregation. And, and he would talk. Uh, they'd have you six months watching the president or other dignitaries, and then six months on counterfeit detail, and you'd go back and forth. But what they teach them about how to detect counterfeit is they spend absolutely no time whatsoever on studying what the latest counterfeit method is or what this bill looks like or what that bill looks like. All they do is they study so that they're intimately familiar with everything, every detail about the real dollar, the real $5, the real 10, the real 20, the real 50, and the real 100, so that when they're out there in the field, the false becomes readily apparent to them. You'd go nuts trying to study all the kinds of false bills out there, just like you and I would go nuts trying to study all the kinds of false teachers out there. Just know the real thing. Be in this book. Be filled with the Spirit, and then the false will become readily apparent. Now, we need to bring this to a close. We've covered a lot of things, um, and it's a really deep and profound chapter. We've just scratched the surface of it because uh, there's more in here than I, we can possibly cover in one morning. But I want to leave us with a closing illustration that will hopefully both summarize what we have learned and leave us with a really good tool to be able to avoid false teaching. And it begins and ends with grace, that unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor that we have with God because of what Jesus did on the cross for us to pay for our sins and by his resurrection to then give us new life. There is no room in grace for works or for human achievement and grace is not a reward for good behavior. As Paul said at the end of Galatians 2, if we could be saved by our works, specifically they are the works of the law, he says that Jesus then died in vain. There would be no reason for God's Son to have died if we could be saved by our works. The Bible says that we are saved by grace and that although grace cost God everything, namely the death of his Son, Grace is a free gift to us from God. We are told in Hebrews 4.16 that when we come to pray to God, those of us who know Jesus, that God's throne is no longer for us a throne of judgment, but rather now it's a throne of grace. Paul teaches in the book of Galatians that not only are we saved by grace, but we're sanctified by grace. In other words, the same grace that saves us will also sanctify us. And we know that one day we will be glorified in heaven by grace. Amen? So this Christian walk that we are on is a walk of grace. And all that we do, be, and are in this life should be done in loving response to God's grace. It's as simple as that. Now, there are two errors that we can often fall into as we're walking in loving response to God's grace. And these two errors, in one way or another, take away from grace and really deny grace. And false teachers tend to promote either one or both of these two errors, and they have been around since the beginning of the church. Daniel talked about them Wednesday night. One is called legalism, which is living your life not in loving response to God's grace, but living it as if you could somehow earn or deserve just a little bit more of God's grace by your behavior or believing that you have to do good things in order to keep God's grace upon you, or that you can somehow add more to the grace that he's given you. A legalistic person thinks that grace isn't enough to save himself or herself, and even if they do think they're saved, they think they can make God somehow love them more or favor them more by how they live their life. Brothers and sisters, we will never be loved more by God than we were the day he saved us. That doesn't increase no matter how long we've walked with God. He gives us all of his love as he gave us in his son, Jesus. So false teachers who promote um, legalism will tend to tell you things like this, that you are not justified in God's sight by grace alone, 
through faith alone and Christ alone. And that things need to be added to that, such as keeping lots of rules of do's and don'ts that humans have made up that aren't found in Scripture. Or they will tell you that in Christ and in his word and in his spirit, you don't really have all that you need to be a godly person. And you need to borrow from the methods of the world, often found in secular behavior modification techniques or corporate motivational or corporate management techniques in order to truly become who God wants you to be. So that's legalism. The other error is called licentiousness, which basically means that you're living your life as if because of grace you have a license, hence the word licentiousness, a license or permission to sin. And that since you are saved by grace, that eh, doesn't matter if you live like hell. So false teachers who promote licentiousness will tell you that what the Bible calls sin is not really sin. You know, maybe it's just a God-given emotion or perhaps it's a, just a desire you have that God gave you or it's, it's the way God made you. So just go ahead and indulge it. It's okay. And even if it is sin, it doesn't really matter because it's covered by God's grace. So you can think of us walking on grace, like walking on a, a balance beam like you see a, at the Olympics or, or even better, uh, to continue the analogy in a minute here, a tightrope that God's called us to walk in, which is walking on this, 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 this tightrope of grace. And on one side of this tightrope is this pit called the pit of legalism. On the other side of this tightrope is another pit called the pit of licentiousness. And there's all these false teachers down there in those pits, and they're calling you to come down here, come down here with us into either legalism or licentiousness. And in so doing, they're doing what 2 Peter 2, 1 said. They're denying Jesus who purchased you with his blood. Now, when you watch someone walk on a tightrope, if you've ever done that, what do they carry with them to keep them from following? They carry what's called a balancing stick. And if they feel themselves leaning too far this way, they can put the balancing stick over this way to counteract it so that they stay on the rope and they don't fall into a pit. And it'll straighten them out so they don't fall. Well, brothers and sisters, you and I have a stick too. And it's called the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is blood on it because he died on it for us. But it is empty because he finished dealing with sin for us and he rose again. And if we are ever doubting the problem of sin, leaning towards that pit of licentiousness and starting to think that sin is not such a big deal and it really doesn't matter how we live, which is what licentiousness does, all we need to do is look at that cross. Think of that blood. And remember that sin is such a big deal that Jesus, God himself, had to die for it in order to make us right with God. Or, on the other hand, if we're starting to lean towards that pit of legalism and we're starting to doubt God's unconditional love for us and we start thinking that we need to do something in order to make God keep loving us or to love us more or maybe to pay off some sin we just committed, which is what legalism makes you do, all we need to do is the same thing. Look at the cross. Look at the cross because it reminds us, as Romans 5.8 says, that while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us in that he sent his son to die for us. So his love in the first place wasn't dependent on how well we were doing or obeying him. He gave it to us while we were yet sinners. Now, speaking of tightropes, as we close, I want to share a true story um, that is for anyone here who may believe that Jesus is real, but you may never have fully trusted in him to save you. Everything we talked about before is for believers who are struggling with those issues. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure you're a believer. You've been coming, you've been hearing about this Jesus. You've heard about him from others. You believe he existed. You might even believe he died and he was resurrected, but you've never really trusted in him and his free grace to save you from your sins and to make you right in God's sight. And the story is this. It's a, it's a true story. It's back in the 1800s, and it involves a famous French man by the name of Jean-Francois Blondin, B-L-O-N-D-I-N. And he was known here in America as Charlie. It's a lot easier than saying Jean-Francois. So Charlie Blondin, he was and probably still is to this day the world's greatest tightrope walker. That's why I picked that example. 
1859, he walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope and back to the other side, distance of about 1,200 feet, an unbelievable accomplishment. And as the event was building and people were gathering, you know, there were, there were crowds uh, really at the one end that he went over, a huge crowd there. And he gets up in the tightrope and people heard of his reputation. And he says, how many of you think I can walk across this tightrope? All the hands went up. They're cheering. You're the great Blondin. We know you can do it. We know you can do it. We believe you can do it. And he gets up and he walks across the tightrope and comes back totally fine. You know, it's like 600 feet down there, the water and the rocks. He would have died if he'd fallen. Then his assistant hands him a wheelbarrow, and he puts the wheelbarrow up in the tightrope with him. And he goes, now, how many of you believe I can walk this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on the tightrope and back? And most all the hands go up. Well, yeah, I guess you can. You're the great Blondin. Okay, you can do it. So he does it. He goes over, and he comes back. And then he says, now, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and very few hands went up. Because you see, it's that step of saying, I'll get in the wheelbarrow, Jesus. I'll trust in you fully and completely for my salvation. Nothing I've done or ever going to do is going to merit me one bit in God's sight. It's only you, Jesus. It's what you've done. I will trust in that. So if you're here and you've never Put yourself in the wheelbarrow of Christ because that's what saving faith is. The first two times, that was just intellectual faith. Sure, you're the great Blondin. You can do it. You can even walk the wheelbarrow. But saving faith in Blondin was, I'll put myself in the wheelbarrow. And that's what it means when we come to Jesus Christ is to put ourselves in the wheelbarrow. So the band's going to come up and start playing in a minute. I'm going to close us in a prayer for now, and then I'll come back afterwards. We'll have our prayer team off to the sides. We would encourage you. If you're a believer and you're wrestling with licentiousness or legalism, come talk to us. Whatever you're struggling with, as we saw, is common to man. We can all wrestle with it. Don't put us up on a pedestal and think we can't relate. We'd love to pray with you. And even more importantly, if you're a non-believer, if you've been in the crowd for weeks and you're saying, yeah, I, I believe there's a Jesus. I believe he did all these things, but you've never trusted in him. Now is your time to do that. Now is your time to do that. Is there anybody here that would like to do that this morning that's never put themselves in the wheelbarrow of Christ? This would be a great time. We'd love to pray with you. Any hands? All right. Well, as the band prays, if you didn't want to raise a hand, come over and talk to one of us on the prayer team as well. Let me close this part in prayer. Father God, thank you for your incredible word, Lord. Thank you that it just gives us the guardrails, Lord, to not fall off that that balance beam or tightrope of grace that you call us to walk on. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here who may be struggling with licentiousness or legalism. Lord, would you set them free from that this morning? Would you, um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just reassure them of that they're saved by grace, Lord, and uh, we can't make ourselves any more righteous in your sight. And if there be any non-believers here, Father, I just pray they would say, yeah, I want to get in the wheelbarrow, Lord. I'm ready. I'm ready to have you take me. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.